0: hello true crime friends welcome back to another episode of true crime in academia i am your host mary de First of all, I hope you are all having a wonderful week so far. If not, that really sucks. I hope it gets better for you. Secondly, we have some housekeeping that we need to go over. Uh, The first being a trigger warning for this episode. Um, This episode, we are going to be talking about different crime scenes violence against women, and sexual assault. So if any of those are really triggering for you, then maybe you need to skip this episode like you did last one, because I'm not trying to traumatize anyone. But also, this is a true crime podcast, so, you know, it kind of comes with the territory. But moving on, our second order of housekeeping is to remind you to become a patron By going to patreon.com slash room. I'm going to be recording some special episodes that will only be on Patreon, and most likely there will be a video, so instead of just hearing me, you'll actually get to see me describe these cases as well, but you can't see any of that unless you go to Patreon and become a patron. That is literally the only way you will have access to that content. Shall become a patron and finally last order of housekeeping just remember to follow true crime and academia on instagram and tiktok at true crime and academia but truth be told i don't really use the tiktok too much i gotta start getting better at that i'm becoming an old person i don't like it <laughs> i don't like it i don't want to be an old person But it is weird, though, how that happens. It's like, man, seriously, it's like one minute you think like you're young and you're hip. And the next minute you're like, what is this music? What are these young whippersnappers listening to? That's not music. That's just noise, noise. But I digress. Anyway, we are doing part two of the Stanford murders last week. Just for a little recap, we discussed very briefly, we discussed the crime scenes And then we talked about the alleged perpetrator. So, this week we are going to be focusing more on the victims and what's going on with their cases now. So, without any further ado, let's get into it. In 1973, Leslie Perloff was just 21 at the time of her murder, and she had just recently graduated from Stanford University in a total of three years. So, I mean, like, she did freshman through senior year in just three years which good for her. Leslie was described as very intelligent, and like with college, she also graduated high school in just 3 years. So, when choosing to go for her undergrad, she knew that she was going to choose Stanford because pretty much everyone in her family had gone there, and it was very much like a family school for them. And she had plans to become a lawyer. She was actually accepted into a law school in Pennsylvania. And from one source that I saw, it says that it was the University of Pennsylvania. But I can't confirm this 100% just because I only saw it from one source. Friends and family stated that Leslie wanted to become a lawyer because she was interested in justice and helping people. On the day of her murder, she was last seen leaving her job at the law library on February 13th in Santa Clara County around 3 p.m. Before she left, she had called her mother to let her know that she was on her way home. She drove her orange 1972 Chevy Nova to a quarry that was owned by Stanford, just off of an exit ramp from the I-280 near Los Altos Hills. She walked around the area, and most people speculated that it was because she wanted to take pictures, because she was also very interested in photography. And this wasn't something abnormal, like she would she would do things like that. Sadly... This pit stop on her way home would cost her her life. Later that night, Leslie's car was found abandoned by the entrance gate to the quarry. Now, I know that her mother was very worried, but I don't know when or if she was the one to have contacted the police to report Leslie missing. And I'm also not sure if they were looking for her at the time that they found her car. So... You know, we have some unknowns most times for missing persons. They want you to wait 24 to 48 hours. So, like, if you remember the Tammy Zwicky case, they had found her car and marked it as abandoned before they even were able to file her missing, which, again, if you find a car with no owner, I whatever. Anyway, so, again, I'm not sure what exactly occurred, but anyway, they found her car that night. Three days later, her body was found under an oak tree just west of where her car was found. Now, I'm not an explorer, but I I mean, I, I understand where West is. But as far as this description for how far away her body was from the car, I'm not sure. Like, West does not tell me where. Like, was this west a few feet? Was this west, like, a mile? Don't know. But apparently... According to these sources, it seems to have been fairly close to her car. But again, I can't give you an exact location. It was reported that Leslie was carrying a purse with her at the time of her disappearance and murder, but it was never recovered. The autopsy concluded that the cause of death was ligature strangulation and that it could have possibly been done with her own scarf. The coroner, Dr. Richard Manson, found that Leslie had fought back and fought back hard. He was able to recover DNA from all ten of her fingernails. He also concluded that her body bore telltale signs of prolonged, brutal torture. She had been beaten so badly that both of her eyes were swollen shut, and she had sustained a broken nose. He had also discovered that her underwear and stockings had been shoved down her throat. Eyewitnesses state that they saw a blonde man near her car sometimes before her disappearance or murder but it doesn't seem like anyone was able to get an exact id and i'm not sure how far along they were with sketches as far as this case is concerned i have not seen or heard that there was a sketch done of from like the eyewitnesses that saw this man so most likely they didn't have one and who knows i mean if they were driving by it's hard to know What exactly a person looks like. I mean, you can give general details, but you're not able to really... Especially, like I said, when you're driving or if these eyewitnesses were driving. They wouldn't have paid attention or really would have had the time to really take an inventory of, like, an exact description of this man. I mean, the fact that they were able to point out that he was blonde, I think, is pretty impressive in and of itself. But, again, not the most promising lead but a lead nonetheless sadly no funeral was held for Leslie and Leslie's sister said that her mother had a really hard time dealing with Leslie's death she had actually said that Leslie's mom threw out everything of Leslie's or that was how hard of a time she was having dealing with the fact that her daughter was dead which was really sad you know and I'm not you know some people might think that that's a little sketchy why you're throwing everything out Did you really care about your daughter? Like, why didn't you have a funeral? And to that I say we all handle grief and trauma differently. And I think that avoidance is a fairly strong reaction to a trauma like that. In my mind, though, like I read that as less suspicious or hateful or weird instead saw a mother who kind of doesn't want to accept the fact that their child is dead and therefore if you don't have anything of theirs and if you don't have a funeral then it didn't happen so yeah a year later the body of another young woman was found janet taylor janet taylor was the daughter of chuck taylor who was stanford's football coach and athletic director at the time which For those of you who don't know, and to be honest, I really didn't know either. That's a huge, huge deal. So he was like a big man on campus. Everyone knew him. And honestly, I kind of heard the name before, but I think that was for other reasons, not because of that. But anyway, he was just a big dude on campus, basically. Now, Janet didn't attend Stanford. Instead, she attended Canada College, which... There's a weird accent on the name, so I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but I think it, i think it is just Canada College. Anyway, she went there, and she lived with her boyfriend in this town called I- Honda. which I'm not sure if I pronounced that right, but it, that's how it looks like it's pronounced. She worked in an office close to where Leslie's body and car were found. On March 24th, 1975, Janet was dropped off at Stanford to have dinner with some friends. She left around 7, and instead of accepting a ride home from one of her friends, Janet decided that she was just going to hitchhike the 15 miles back home. Sadly, Janet never made it home. Now, I know what you all are thinking. She's insane. Why would she do that? Blah, 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 blah. I get it. But during this time, hitchhiking was not nearly as dangerous, or at least not thought to be as dangerous as it is today. And, you know, it it was more common than people would expect. But sadly for, for Janet, this was not the case. It was not so safe. The next morning, a truck driver named Ernesto Evangelo found Janet's lifeless body while on his morning milk delivery route, which was on Sand Hill Road. And it's actually the same area where Leslie was found. And surprise, surprise, it's also Stanford property. Her purse was also missing and never recovered. The autopsy concluded that Janet had been strangled with her own sweater due to the impressions left on her neck by the turtleneck that she was wearing. Her face had been badly beaten. It was undetermined if she had been raped, but forensics found DNA in the form of sperm fragments on the inside and outside of her pants. Like Leslie, Janet fought back, and it was stated that she had a brown belt in karate, so she knew what she was doing. It was also discovered that she had been beaten so badly that the sleeve of the shirt that she was wearing underneath her turtleneck sweater was ripped. Sadly, her live-in boyfriend was called in to identify her body. Both Leslie and Janet's murders would go unsolved for 45 years. So I actually had a similar experience to uh, Mr. Ernesto Evangelo over here. I was driving home from my boyfriend's house one night late at night, like I want to say it's probably twelve forty-five ish, twelve thirty. I say like, I'm a night owl, so I don't usually go to bed until like one o'clock, one thirty. So you know, it's just on my way home as usual, and you know I'm. You know, I could be smarter and take different routes to his house every time because that would, you know, make it harder for someone to track me. But I don't. So I drive the same roads every day uh, to and from his house. And when I was driving home, like I said, I noticed something strange. Like, again, noticed something strange. I saw this black thing. And there, like in that area in particular, there are a bunch of like black trash cans. And so I just thought it was like one of those that it got knocked over. And as I'm getting closer, I'm like, no, that looks more like a bicycle. But then I was like, why would someone I, Someone just dump their bike there? Unless, you know, something was going on, right? Or, you know, it could have just been someone just dumped their bike there and, you know, whatever. It was right out front of the municipal building there, which even though that's not the police department, there are a ton of cops there. So, you know, some teenagers were getting into some trouble. And ditched their bike there. That would make sense. But anyway, that wasn't the case. Because as I was driving by, there was a body next to it. Yes. Not a dead body, thank God. But immediately, I just called 911. And I was like, um, I literally just drove by the municipal building. And there's a bike and a person's body there. So, thankfully, the man was okay. It seemed like it was a hit and run, sadly. Um... I did have to go back and talk to the police and let them know what I saw, but I was just like, dude, I didn't see anything. All I did (laughs) was just this dude lying on the sidewalk, which again, I thought was weird because if he was hit by a car, why was he on the sidewalk? I don't know. Anyway, I didn't ask too many questions. All I know is that he's going to be okay and that's fine. So I do understand Ernesto's situation in this. And, you know, thankfully he was not like some other bystanders who, you know, because there is bunch of theories on the bystander effect, you know why a bunch of people can be bystanders to a crime being committed and no one calls for help. Um and that's something that actually terrifies. like that that specific um theory, I guess. It's called cuz it's kind of I mean it's technically it's been ruled as like true like that this does happen. So I don't know how much of a theory it is and more of like a fact, but anyway, That's beside the point. So like, that's something that always scares me. So I'm always like, I try to not be that person. So which is why I called right away. And thankfully, he did too. But also, like, I have to wonder, like, in my situation, how many people drove by and either didn't pay attention, which I can't fault them for that, because you are driving, you, you know, you're supposed to be paying attention to the road, and not other things. So I get that. But the same time you know if you were in that situation wouldn't you want someone to call for help for you you know so again I get it thankfully he was a good Samaritan and stopped and reported all these things but it is crazy though when you think about how many cars could have possibly driven by her body and not given it a second thought you know so it's sad but again luckily Ernesto stopped and did something about it. So, what was John Gatrue doing during this time, you might wonder? Well, he wasn't behaving himself, that's for sure. The following year, in 1975, Gatrue raped a 17-year-old Girl Scout. Now, if you remember from last week's episode, Gatrue was not only working as a technician at Stanford University, but he was also working with the Boy Scouts. There's not much information about this case, but my guess is that he met this victim through some sort of scout event, I guess. Because that seems to be the only connection between the two. He did plead guilty to statutory rape and was sentenced for six months, five months suspended. Which, when I heard that, I was very confused. That's not a term I'd ever heard before about anything being suspended, But what it means, basically, is that he if he behaved himself in prison for a month then he would be eligible to get out after that month, which is like, what the fuck? Really? Like, what the fuck? I mean, I'm sorry, I'm not laughing because it's funny. And if you've listened to this podcast enough, you know that I laugh out of frustration. And this is one of those times. But for real, like, how is that even fucking fair? You have an adult who's supposed to be trusted around children and then goes on to commit one of the worst atrocities against children and only has to serve one fucking month, like for certain, because, you know, if he didn't behave himself, he would have been there for the other five. But still, but I mean, even when you think of that, that is still an insanely short amount of time for a grown ass man, because he was in like his 30s at the time, to have to serve for raping a 17-year-old, you know? And I don't know if, like, the Boy Scouts let him go after that, because they should have if they didn't. And, you know, there's no evidence to say that this was, like, a quote-unquote consensual sexual relationship. But I have a strong feeling that it wasn't. I mean, given his track record, it's not like he's been doing such a great job with consent here. You know, and then you have the accusations from his stepdaughter. I mean, <sighs> John Coutreau is not the type of man who just asks for sex and then takes the answer. It, from what we've seen, he is someone who will use whatever force or whatever violence he feels necessary in order to get sex. Hate hey, you Crime Friends. You've heard me talk about my amazing friend Mandy before. She makes the best crochet, cricut, cut and custom home decor for reasonable prices. If you're looking for a one-of-a-kind gift or some new decor to add some new life into your home, look no further. Mandy has got you. I have quite a few items from her, ranging from a crocheted headband to Halloween decor items to my amazing and adorable Coraline ornament. Um, If you guys haven't noticed, I'm like obsessed with Coraline and I just love how Mandy makes it. She's also made me a Coraline doll that sits next to all of my true crime books. To order, just slide in her DMs on Facebook and Instagram at Mandy Made It. That's M-A-N-D-E-E Made It on Facebook and Instagram. Once again, go to Mandy Made It on Facebook and Instagram. Send her a DM and order today. Now, shockingly, after his divorce, he was able to remarry in 1978. Yeah. Yeah. Someone actually found him, like, desirable enough to marry. Thankfully, he shouldn't have a daughter, though. The two of them did go on to have children together, specifically a son, which we will talk about him a little bit later. But according to his son, he said that his father raised him to be kind, to respect women, and to understand that no means no. Which, it's definitely a case of do as I say, not as I do, right? Fucking hate that shit. And the couple actually remained married until her death in 2003. So, I mean, till death do them part, literally. Which, again, shocking. And again, it's always shocking to me to see, like, how... Because it doesn't seem like there were really any more crimes that he committed after this point. And it's just weird. Because, like, same thing with uh, certain other serial killers who kind of stop at a certain point. Because the notion used to be that serial killers were either going to stop when they're dead or stop when they've been caught. And there wasn't a lot of research done into, you know, just when serial killers kind of just stopped. You know, there was never anything looked into about that because they didn't think it was possible. But it is. So I just thought it was interesting that, you know, his crimes kind of stop around this time. You know, now that he is a respectable family man again. It's just it's it's strange. In 2018, the evidence from Leslie Perlov's case was sent to Parabon Nano Labs in Reston, Virginia. Officers hoped that the DNA would be a match to a man named Stephen Crawford, who allegedly killed a woman named Arliss Perry. Which, that was a huge case back then. And they were really trying to get that one closed. And they'd had, obviously, the suspect Stephen Crawford, and they thought it was... They thought that Leslie's DNA, or the DNA found their Leslie's fingernails that they had had, was going to be a match to this guy. And it wasn't, Obviously. Now, genetic genealogist CeCe Moore tested the DNA and was able to build a family tree that led her to John Gatrue. Now, I'm not going to go in too much about genetic genealogy um, or forensic genetic genealogy, even though that's technically not a thing. But this has been used in cases before. I'm sure you guys have seen it on crime shows. Basically, what they do is they take the DNA from the sample and they try to find relatives of that person. Which allows them to, you know, make this family tree and then eventually find these people. Which, again, is very fascinating. And But, I mean, there can also be room for error, things like that. It's definitely one of the more newer sciences that were, you know using to try and figure out and trying to find these serial killers who kind of just vanish off the face of the earth and you know obviously it's great that they're helping solve some of these cold cases and things like that but again it's still a fairly new science as far as like science is concerned so you know there still is room for error but luckily there was not in this case and she was able to find John Coutreau. Police were able to obtain Gattreux's DNA from a coffee cup that he had discarded in a trash can. Something you see literally out of a true crime or a crime show, right? It's like the police are stalking the dude, just waiting, or it's like when they're in the uh, invest or in the interrogation room and they're like, "Oh, here's a glass of water." That's how they get you, people. That's how they get you. But yeah, it felt very much like a like a crime show. <laughs> I could just picture officers waiting around the corner or in a car, watching him, it's like the second he drops that cup, they're like, go, 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 you know, to get the cup. But, you know, I still think that's cool that they were able to do that. Now, this discovery led to the testing of the DNA left in Janet's case, which was also a match. San Mateo Sheriff's Office thankfully collaborated with Santa Clara's Police Department, and they were able to establish this connection between the two cases. This was all possible because of the police handling both cases at the crime scenes actually preserved evidence properly. Holy shit. Thank God. I'm sorry. There are so many times in these cases where you just see how horribly investigators and police fuck that up. So the fact that they did not fuck it up this time, I was just like, thank God. So because of them, the evidence was preserved properly. So they were able to get DNA from the samples that wasn't too degraded by time and other elements, you know. So way to go, officers. Way to go, San Mateo Sheriff's Office. And way to go, Santa Clara Police Department. Use rule. However, I can't say for the rest of your state, though. <laughs> but that's a, that's a topic for another day. In November of 2018, Getrue was arrested and charged with Leslie Perloff's murder. So far, he has pleaded not guilty, and the case is set to go to trial this year. Cold case detective Sergeant No Cortez stated that Leslie's case was a brutal crime. I believe she fought for her life. And part of that was scratching, biting, whatever she had to do to survive. She wanted to live. Now around this time, possibly a little bit before, if my memory serves correct, Margaret Williams, who was Gatrue's first victim in Germany, her brother phoned the police and the FBI and told them that he thought Gatrue was the Golden State Killer. Crazy, right? But I mean, it fits. They had the same... M.O., sort of, but obviously, this was just speculation, and although, like I said, his suspicions were valid, Gatru was not the Golden State Killer, Joseph D'Angelo is, who is in prison currently. In December of 2020, Gatru was charged with Janet Taylor's murder. Of course, he entered a plea of not guilty, and in September of 2021, a jury convicted him for Jane's murder. Now, in this case, Gatru's stepdaughter and ex-wife both testified against him and confirmed that they lived in the area where the bodies were found and how they often drove on that road. Now, during this trial, I did see somewhere that Leslie's sister actually attended, like to show support and, you know, just to, you know, be there in a way for her sister as well. Even though it wasn't her case, it was a case that was related to hers, so... Now, at first, Gatrude's son, who I had mentioned earlier, was shocked. He could not believe that his father, who he saw as a loving, kind, and good person, was this violent rapist and murderer. He actually didn't accept it at first until he called up his aunts and uncles and found out about the rape and murder conviction in Germany, which he said was described as a family secret. I'm sorry. But I feel like family secrets should be restricted to, like, I don't know, recipes, hiding places in the house for non-nefarious reasons. You know, they should be lighter. Not, oh, your brother, our son, raped and murdered a 15-year-old girl and had to serve five years in Germany. Which is also bullshit. Because, again... What the fuck is up with these sentences for rape and murder? like <laughs> Or attempted murder. You know, like, what the fuck? Anyway. Yeah. Like, so that's not like a, a typical, you know, family secret, if you will. So after hearing about that, his son was just like, oh, no, you are definitely guilty. And now he just wants nothing at all to do with him. So, you know, good for him. Now, it is possible that there could have been more women that John killed or had sexually assaulted, but we do not know that for sure. It does seem like the attempted murder and assault of Sharon Lucchese that we talked about last week is still being investigated, but I haven't seen anything else about that yet. So after the jury found Katrue guilty of Janet's rape and murder, he was sentenced to life in prison. And, you know, as I said, the trial for Leslie Perloff is not has not um occurred yet it is supposed to be for some time this year i will keep you guys posted but you know thankfully he's off the streets i mean you know like i said it didn't seem like he committed very many crimes after he got remarried in 1978 but we don't know that for sure and again you know there could have been more women in between that period between 73 and 74 and 75, even before then, that we just don't know about. And, you know, given the fact that he entered the not guilty plea, which technically, I mean, it doesn't matter if you did or didn't do the thing. They always say to say not guilty because technically the job of the prosecution is to prove without a reasonable doubt that you did what they say you're doing. But it's up to the defense to poke holes in that theory, essentially. So, you know, for that reason, you know, he he pleaded not guilty. And, again, like, I'm sure his lawyer told him to say that. And, again, like I said, it's up to the prosecution to prove without a reasonable doubt that he did these things. It's not up to the defense. <laughs> you know, like I said, the defense really is just there. You know, obviously they give you a defense hence the name. But, you know, they're, like I said, their main job is to poke holes and cast reasonable doubt in what the prosecution is saying. So, I don't want anyone thinking that, like, he was some proud jackass or, like, that any of these serial killers are who initially plead not guilty. That's not it. That's kind of just par for the curse, you know. But I will try to keep you guys posted. I've been looking to see if anything's going on with Leslie Perloff's case. I have not seen anything yet, but as I do, or when I do, I will let you guys know, all right? And that is all I have for you this week with the Stanford murders. I hope you guys enjoyed this two-parter. I enjoyed researching it, which sounds really terrible to say, but that's kind of just the way it is with true crime, isn't it? It's like, yeah, I enjoy listening and hearing about and watching content that's all about people dying and to be like, oh yeah, it's exciting, it's fascinating, it's a, you know it feels insensitive to say that, but clearly, you know, we're all here because we're interested in true crime. That's not to be insensitive, that it's just how it is. But please do not forget to follow True Crime and Academia on Instagram and TikTok at True Crime and Academia. I'm going to do my best with TikTok. I promise. I really am going to try this week. (laughs) We will see how that goes. (laughs) But next week, I have a very exciting case. Well, not an exciting case. I have a very exciting episode for you all that I cannot wait for you guys to listen to. It's another interview. So I am very excited for that. Also, do not forget to become a patron by going to patreon.com slash ivory tower room. So you can get access to some of the very exclusive content that I will have for you this summer. AKA next month. So get on it. Come on. Become a patron so you can see it. All right. I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week. Please stay safe out there. Stay healthy. Stay happy or try as much as you can to preserve those things. I love you all. Enjoy the rest of your week. And I will see you later.
1: We hope you enjoyed this Ivory Tower Boiler Room or True Crime in Academia episode. You can watch our video versions of our episodes on Patreon.com slash Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Join at the price of an iced coffee or join as an Ivory Tower member and get some of our exclusive merchandise. I could not be here without an amazing team. So I'm Andrew Rimby, the executive director, and I am joined with Mary DePippi, our chief contributor, who hosts True Crime in Academia. It comes out on Tuesdays. Jaren is our marketing director, and our two interns are Nicole Arguello and Kimberly Dallas. And I'm actually here with Mary. So, Mary, where can they follow us on social media?
0: You can find us on TikTok and Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. On Twitter, we are at Ivory Boiler Room. And then just search the Ivory Tower Boiler Room on Facebook, and you can like our page there.
1: Wonderful. And we. Mary and I and the whole team hope you all are healthy and happy, and we can't wait to join you and, you know, have you all join us in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room next week. Bye, everyone.
0: Bye.